So let me draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the 36th Psalm. Psalm 36. We'll be reading this psalm in its entirety. And as you turn there, I remind you, brothers and sisters, before I read this, that what we are about to hear is the word of the living God. So may we tremble before it. May our hearts, by His grace, be contrite before His word and before His authority. And may He use it to great effect in our hearts and lives for the furtherance of the gospel. Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we humbly confess our great need for You to teach us now from Your Word. For we confess that we are incapable of rightly knowing You and making You known without the illuminating and sustaining work of Your Holy Spirit. And so we ask now that You might glorify Yourself in our midst this morning by revealing Yourself to us in Your Word. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for His sake. Amen. Well, as we've continued to work our way through the Psalter over the last several years, one of the recurring themes that we see again and again and again through the Psalter is the theme that God's people, 
those whom he has graciously chosen to save and redeem, that he might be their God and they might be his people, are consistently pursued and persecuted and suffer at the hands of those who do not belong to God, but belong to this world and the flesh and the devil. And so as we've worked through the Psalter, what we've seen again and again is David has these enemies. God's people have these enemies pursuing them. Whether that be another king of Israel like Saul, David's own son like Absalom, or kings and unbelieving nations, we're seeing that God's people are relentlessly attacked. And brothers and sisters, if you're paying attention, even here in America, the same is still true today. God's people are under attack from unbelievers, from those who do not walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. And so no matter where you are in the globe, if you are a Christian, you suffer and are persecuted at the hands of unbelievers. Now, no doubt, that looks very different for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who are being slaughtered, and our brothers and sisters in China who are being imprisoned and whose buildings are being demolished so that they don't have a place to meet. No doubt, the degree, the severity of that persecution varies from place to place. But the reality is still true. And so here's the question then. How are we to respond to that? How are we to rightly think about that? We've learned a lot about that as we've walked through the Psalter, but what I love about Psalm 36 is it helps us answer that question by giving us two realities and one response in light of those realities so that we might live in this fallen world rightly understanding our enemies and how we are to respond to them. And so the first reality that we're going to look at is the reality of man's depravity. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. We need to understand the heart and mindset of our enemies. And so we'll look first at man's total depravity, the fact that body and soul, he is affected in his entire person by sin. Second of all, we need to understand the reality of God's steadfast love. We need to not just understand the fallen nature of our enemies, but the loving kindness and character of our covenant God. That's where our meditation ultimately needs to be. And so we're shown that in verses 5 through 9. And then in light of these two realities, man's depravity and God's steadfast love, we're then given the only appropriate response for us to have in light of those realities. And the only appropriate response is for us to be on our faces in prayer praying that the Lord would keep us and continue his steadfast love towards us until all of our enemies are cut down. And so it's my prayer this morning as we look at this psalm that we likewise would be equipped to rightly understand our enemies, our covenant God, and how we are to respond to these realities in this fallen world. So let's look first then at the first reality that we need to understand, man's depravity. And we'll begin by looking at the superscript, which reads, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. So we're told, who wrote this psalm? It's David, Israel's chosen king by God, meant to rule over them, to represent the people to the world. 
And because David has that role as Israel's king, he has many enemies, as we've already talked about. And God, in his grace and mercy, has revealed to David the heart and mindset of his enemies, that he might rightly interact with them and understand them. And David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens for God's people this reality that we might rightly understand it ourselves. And right out of the gate, David gets to the very heart of fallen man. We see that in verse 1. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What you've got to love about David here and what you've got to love about Scripture is there's no sugarcoating. There's no putting on rose-colored glasses about man's fallen nature. The Holy Spirit reveals to us that transgression, rebellion, sin is not just a surface issue for fallen mankind, right? You'll see the culture try to give you that explanation. You turn on the, the evening news, or maybe you read the news like I was this morning, reading these appalling stories about what one image bearer can do to another, and yet you hear their explanations. Well, it's because of their upbringing, because of their circumstances, because of how they were raised. We're given these surface explanations, and yet Scripture cuts through all of that falsehood and says, no, you want to know what the problem is? Rebellion and transgression speaks deep to the heart of fallen man. But David takes it even deeper than that, doesn't he? Because what does he say in the second half of verse 1? He says, there is no fear of God before his eyes. This is the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is that, look at verse 2, he flatters himself, fallen man in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He doesn't think that he's going to be called to account for his rebellion. He deceives himself. He is delusional that he is God and that he can do what is right in his own eyes with no consequences. Why? Because he has no fear of God before his eyes. He has a broken relationship with God in Adam. Adam broke the covenant of works. And that guilt of Adam is imputed to us. And so, brothers and sisters, we are as fallen men and women before we're saved, conceived in sin and wickedness and evil. And then from that original sin, we then commit actual sin. And that is fallen man's ultimate problem. They have this broken relationship with God in which they hate him, and everything else flows out of that. And the opposite is true as well, right? We're told in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When the Lord saves us, redeems us, and enters into a gracious covenant relationship with us, we now fear Him and love Him. And that directs and dictates the words that we say, the actions that we do. It dictates everything. It flows our lives from that relationship. Well, the same is true for fallen man. But instead of wisdom, it's folly and sin. And this is what David shows us in the remaining verses here Look at verse 3. He says, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? What is 
fallen man's heart filled with? Trouble and deceit. So what's coming out of his mouth? Trouble and deceit. It affects his speech. He stirs up trouble. He spreads lies wherever he goes. But it doesn't just affect his words. It affects his actions. Look at the second half of verse 3. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. God has created us in His image to act wisely and to do good, to reflect His wisdom and glory, and yet fallen man will have nothing to do with it. He doesn't act wisely and good. He acts foolishly and sinfully because there's no fear of God before his eyes. David goes on to tell us, fallen man can't get enough of wickedness and evil. Look at verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. The wicked love transgression so much that even in their quiet times of meditation... They're not drawn to the Lord and His character and His goodness. No, they're drawn towards, how can I participate in more transgression? How can I rebel more against the Lord? They cannot even rest until they've come up with some plan for them to increase their evil and wickedness. And so what we see then is that fallen man is not wanting to do good, but unable to do so. No, his entire course in life is set towards wickedness and foolishness. Look at the second half of verse 4. David says he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. That is how fallen man's life is characterized. Because there's no fear of God before his eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, this is true of all fallen mankind. And I'm guessing some of you immediately have this objection. Well, Aunt Susie, who sends $25 to, you know, this orphanage in Romania every month, but who is still a believer, this is true of her? I think this is just true of the Hitlers and the Stalins and the terrorists who fly planes into the Twin Towers. It's not true of all fallen mankind. No, brothers and sisters, it is true of all fallen mankind. And we could prove that from the Old Covenant the Old Testament, but the New Testament makes this abundantly clear. Because in Romans chapter 3, Paul picks up Psalm 36 verse 1, and he quotes it in Romans 3 chapter, uh, Romans 3 verse 18. You remember there, Paul is just piling up descriptions of fallen man from the Old Testament. There is no one who seeks God. No one does good. They all do what's right in their own eyes. And the very capstone of it all is Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is true of all fallen mankind. And we need to understand this reality. Why? Two main reasons. First of all, this is what we've been saved from, brothers and sisters. This is the state that we were in when God in His love and grace and mercy saved us as a brand plucked from the fire. We didn't fear Him. We hated Him. We were living as if we were a law unto ourselves, hell-bound, deserving of His wrath. And yet He saved us and redeemed us and gave us a new heart so that we do fear Him and we do love Him and we hate transgression and evil and we hate the wicked even as He does. And so, brothers and sisters, in order to taste deeply of the sweetness of God's grace and mercy and love, 
the sweetness of the gospel, we must understand what we've been saved from and how lost we were. But second of all, we need to understand this is the fallen state of those who hate us and the fallen state of those who hate God. So when you see what they are doing to you, what you see, when you see what they are doing to your brothers and sisters across this globe, you're not shocked. Instead, you understand, no, this is the state of fallen man in his rebellion against his Creator. This is his heart and mindset. And so I'm not surprised at what they do to me, and I'm not surprised at what they do to my brothers and sisters across the globe. Here's the thing, though. Aren't you thankful that's not where the sermon ends? Aren't you thankful that's not where the psalm ends? Because what does David go on to tell us? He doesn't just show us this reality of man's total depravity. He then, in stark contrast, the greatest contrast there could ever be, draws our attention to the character, the steadfast love of God. Is there any greater contrast? You think of the contrast in Psalm 1 between the wicked man, fallen man, and redeemed man, righteous man, walking in covenant faithfulness with God. That's quite the contrast. But David says, we're going to kick it up a notch here. (laughs) The contrast is between fallen man and his holy, holy, holy creator. That's where he wants our ultimate meditation to be. Yes, he wants us to understand the state of fallen man and our enemies, but then he draws our attention to the God who rules and reigns over all. And so we see that first in verse 5. Because in verses 5 and 6, David's really explaining the character of God and how that affects his rule and reign over all creation. So David says in verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. David says, You are I am that I am. You have existence in and of yourself. And so you're dependent on nothing and no one. And anything that has existence has received that from you. And you sustain that existence. And you sovereignly rule over all things. Guiding and directing them in accord with your eternal decree to their appointed ends. And so he's saying, Lord, this is who you are. And you are love. You are not just loving. You are love itself. And your love extends to the heavens. He's using this analogy from nature to tell us that just as we don't know where the heavens begin and end, God is infinite. Now, the heavens are not infinite, but God is infinite. He's infinite in His love. He's infinite in all of His character. He's eternal. And so David is standing in awe of that and saying, Lord, your steadfast love is so great It rules over all things. All creation is the way that it is because you are who you are. And so David's reminding us, he's reminding himself, this is my Father's world. And so even though the the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. He goes on to say at the end of verse 5, your faithfulness is to the clouds. Your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, your character, Lord, is infinite as well. And so if the Lord says He's going to do something, we can know that He will, in fact, do that. Because that's His character. That's His infinite, perfect character. David goes on to say, Your righteousness is like the mountains 
of God. Again, borrowing from nature, he says, listen, God, your character, your righteousness is like a fixed mountain, right? If you know anything about mountains, it's not like you go to bed one day and wake up and then that mountain's gone, right? Unless there's some major, major catastrophe. Mountains don't just disappear. And so what is this pointing to the reality of? Lord, you are immutable. You don't change. You're not fickle like we are fickle. No, your righteousness, your character does not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so David's saying, Lord, when I look at the mountains, I'm reminded of your righteousness. And since you are righteous, he's going to go on to say at the end of this psalm, I know you'll cut down my enemies. He goes on to say in verse 6, your judgments are like the great deep. This is another reference to nature. What's the great deep? The depths of the ocean. Now, they certainly couldn't explore those back then. But brothers and sisters, even with our technology today, we still have not explored all of the mysteries. We have not fathomed the depths of the ocean. And so what David is saying here is, Lord, your wisdom is infinite. And so the way that you rule and reign in this world, though it often does not make sense to me, and I sometimes question, Lord, what are you up to? I know, and I'm reminding myself, I am finite. My wisdom, whatever wisdom I may have, is like a drop in the bucket, but your wisdom is, and this analogy falls short, like the great ocean itself. I cannot even begin to comprehend it, to understand why you cause history to unfold the way that you do in accord with your eternal decrees. And so he's rejoicing in God's character. And then the capstone of this and the way that God rules over all creation, he says, man and beast, you save, O Lord. Echoes all throughout these verses of the Noahic covenant. Man is fallen, totally depraved. God sees that. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to flood all the earth and wipe man and all of the beasts out except for Noah and his family and these select animals that are going to go on the ark. And so what are we seeing? That God loves and preserves his creation. And so we see again that God is is love. And so his character shows up and, and is on display in creation itself. And David rejoices in that and meditates on that as he faces persecution from his enemies. But note that he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, Lord, I rejoice in your character, in your relationship with all creation. He then zeroes in on, Lord, your character in relationship to your covenant people. Look at verses 7 through 9. David says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. He says, Lord, your steadfast love, since you are love, you are loving towards us as your people. We didn't deserve it. We were, we were like the fallen lump of humanity in verses 1 through 4. And yet for your own sake, you made us gracious objects of your steadfast love. And as I meditate on that, I can't put a value on it. It's more precious than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, how precious is your steadfast love. And how does that steadfast love show up? 
in the lives of his covenant people? Look at the second half of verse 7. David says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We, the only place that fallen man can find shelter from the wrath of God, the wrath that he rightly deserves for his rebellion as laid out in verses 1 through 4, that wrath of God is in God himself. And so this is covenant language taken from Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 where the Lord says, I'm like an eagle that that covers you and shelters you, little chicks, with my wings, protecting you, providing for you. And what is this pointing us towards? The reality of the coming Messiah in whom we would find refuge as He pays the penalty for God's wrath on the cross. We then hide in Him and He atones for our sins so He experiences the wrath that we might not. And we're clothed, we find refuge in His perfect righteousness that He fulfilled the law in its entirety in our place. And so David's talking about the second psalm, isn't he? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Who's the Him? It's the Son, it's the Messiah. And so the only place that you can take refuge in God is God himself. And because of his steadfast love, he's given his Messiah to do that. But the Lord doesn't just protect his people in his covenant relationship with them. He also provides for them abundantly. Look at verse 8. David says, they feast, the covenant people of God, feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is is tabernacle language. This is temple language. Reminding God's people that when they came and they brought a sacrifice and the animal was slaughtered as a sign that their sins had been atoned for, they were then given portions of the sacrifice to eat. And it was good food. And to drink. And it was good drink. And there was a large amount of it. But here's the thing, the Lord's not just telling them, I provide food and drink for you. No, that food and drink was meant to show them that now that your sins have been atoned for, you have peace and fellowship with me. And how do we know that? The Hebrew actually points us towards that. Because at the very end of verse 8 there, the Hebrew scholars tell me that the river of your delights should actually be translated the river of your Edens. Pointing us back to when Adam and Eve, before the fall, had unbroken, unhindered fellowship and communion with God. And David's saying that's been restored to us through the Lord's gracious covenant. We now have fellowship and provision for eternal life through what He's provided for us. goes on to say in verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life, In your light do we see light. David's not just saying, Lord, you're the fountain of all life since you have life in and of yourself. And so anything that has life has received it from you and you sustain them. He's saying more than that, you have given us spiritual life. When we were spiritually dead to you, as all fallen man is in verses 1 through 4, you're the fount of not just physical life, but spiritual life. 
And you've given life to us. And you've revealed truth to us. Yes, we can know much about you from creation, verses 5 through 9. But there's so much that we can't know about you. And so you've given us your word. And by that light, not just scripture, but that we can see it rightly and believe it because you give us the gift of faith. By your light, we now see the light of everything else. So you see the abundant provision of God's steadfast love towards his people under the old covenant. David is rejoicing in that. But brothers and sisters, we see this with even greater clarity in the new covenant, don't we? Because Jesus picks up so much of this language from verses 7 through 9, particularly in the Gospel of John, which should make perfect sense to us because what does Paul say about Jesus? He says all of the old covenant promises of God find their yes, their amen, their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. And so when he comes in his earthly ministry, he picks up so much of this language from verses 7 through 9. He says, for example, that he is the fountain of life. Right at the end of verse 9, David says, I'm sorry, the beginning of verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. And then what does Jesus say about himself in John 5.25? He says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. The only way to the Father is through the Son. He is the gate. He is the door. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is for us this fountain of spiritual life. When we were spiritually dead, He sends the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. And our spiritual life now flows from Him. And so we're alive to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and have restored fellowship and communion because Jesus is our fountain of life. Jesus also says that he is our bread of life. Right in verse 8, David says, they feast on the abundance of your house. And what does Jesus say? In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not just the fount of our spiritual life, He is the one who then sustains that spiritual life. Even as we need food to eat and digest and process that our physical life might continue, we need Jesus to feast on Him by grace through faith that our spiritual life might be sustained by Him, by the Word, and by the Spirit Jesus also says that he is our living water. In the second half of verse 8, David says, and you give them drink from the river of your Edens, from the river of your delights. And what does Jesus say to the woman at the well? He says in John chapter 4, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water again. Who's the one that refreshes our souls in this dry and weary world? Who sustains us when we feel like we can't go on any further? It is Jesus. He is the water of living water to us. He he is the drink that we need spiritually. And how do we be refreshed? By the sending of the Holy Spirit. 
right? The Holy Spirit is, is the promise of the new covenant. And since Jesus is the fulfiller of the new covenant, he's given the Holy Spirit without measure. And then after his ascension, he sends the Spirit out on all flesh. And brothers and sisters, we have received that Spirit and all the benefits of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so he continues to sustain us. Jesus also says that he is the light of the world. At the second half of verse 9, we're told, in your light do we see light. And what does Jesus say about himself in John 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, we were once in darkness, weren't we? as all fallen mankind is. And yet in that darkness, God graciously shined the light of the glory of His Son in our darkened souls. And we were given spiritual eyes and the gift of faith to believe Him. And Scripture revealed things to us about Jesus that we wouldn't otherwise know from the light of nature. And so it's true that by Jesus... Do we see all truth now? Because He is the light of the world. And so, brothers and sisters, behold the steadfast love of our covenant-keeping God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to be our meditation. Yes, we need to understand the reality of our enemies and rightly hate them and their actions as we talked about last week. But the ultimate lion's share of our meditation is to be on God's steadfast love that will cause us to endure and and rather than return evil for evil, return good for evil. Because that's the temptation, isn't it? We'll look at that a little bit more as to, to respond to our enemies the way that they are treating us. And yet we don't have to because our meditation is to be not on the ugliness and the meanness and the wickedness of this world and fallen mankind, but on the steadfast love of God and His protection and provision for us in the midst of our enemies. Briefly, what's our only proper response? Our only proper response to the reality of man's depravity and God's steadfast love is to pray. To get on our faces and pray that the Lord would keep us And cause us to persevere. Until when? Until He cuts down all of our enemies. You see that in verses 10 through 12. David says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. David says, Lord, it's not just enough that you are love in and of yourself, and that you show your steadfast love to your people in the past, but you must continually, ongoingly sustain us with your steadfast covenant love. Otherwise, why? We will fall back to the mass of fallen mankind unless you keep us. Because what's the only difference between us and fallen mankind? It's the steadfast love of God. So continue to keep us. Continue to cause us to persevere. That's why David goes on to say in verse 11, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. He's not just saying, don't let my enemies have victory over me in conquering me, right? Because that's what in the ancient world they'd do. They'd lay you flat and put your, their foot on your neck as a sign of submission. I've conquered you. Yield. But more importantly, what David is saying is, Lord, I know in my heart, 
I still have this battle raging between the flesh and the spirit. And so I want to respond to my enemies, return evil for evil rather than good for evil as you have commanded me to do. So Lord, keep me. Cause me to persevere and endure. Until when? Until verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Notice the past tense. David saying, there, the evildoers lie fallen. David still has enemies. And he will have enemies until the day he dies. So why is he speaking like his enemies have already been conquered? Because he knows the steadfast love of the Lord. He knows the character of God. And so he knows the Lord will keep his promises and cut down all of his enemies. And so brothers and sisters, behold again the steadfast love of God to us in Christ. Understand the reality of our fallen enemies. They hate us. That's what we've been saved from. And the only thing that can change their heart is not a politician being in office, is not certain laws being passed. The only hope of fallen man's heart being changed. And thus everything that flows out of that changing, his speech and his actions, is the steadfast love of the Lord. Be on your face for unbelievers. And let our meditation be the steadfast love of the Lord. And may we pray that he would keep us, knowing that he will. Because what's Jesus' promise to us as we live in this fallen world and as we suffer at the hands of our enemies? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it until he returns and all our enemies are destroyed. And until that day comes, we can sing together the words of that old hymn, The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Midst toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let me pray.